Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Good morning, everyone. So great to see you all here. What a, what a blessing it is to meet together one more time. And, you know, as I always say every Sunday, for one more Sunday closer to glory. This may be it, eh? This may be the final one before we see our Savior. Just uh, yesterday, I received some news that an old friend of mine, he's not old, but he's an old friend, he went to be with the Lord yesterday. You know, he's been struggling with cancer in his brain for years and years. He's, he's not even 50 years old. He's in his 40s still. And that came, came that moment for him when he saw his Savior. You remember last week when we were looking at Psalm 130, I was saying that when you face death, nothing else matters but you and God. All of your things, all of your possessions, all of your prestige, your status, your stamp collections. Nothing else matters anymore, but it's personal, it's between you and God. And it's wonderful that we can again have a look at another psalm today. And this psalm today is Psalm 24, a very famous psalm. It's one of the messianic psalms, a psalm that speaks about the Lord Jesus. And I'm hoping that today, the, the final Sunday before Christmas, I'm hoping that this psalm will be a real encouragement to you. I, I thought that this 10 verse psalm was going to be easy to understand. And for the most part of four days, I spent trying to understand this psalm myself. You know, of course I've read it before. How many times? You know, of course I've heard people preaching on it. How many times? But when I came to study it, I realize that there's more to the psalm than meets the eye. And I'm hoping that as you have a look at the psalm today, that the Lord will bless you and encourage you as we go into Christmas. So, let's have a look at this psalm. Psalm, uh, psalm 24. Psalm 100 and something was last week. Today is Psalm 24. And I'm reading from the NIV where David says, it's a psalm of David, where he writes, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Verse 3. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Selah. Verse 7. 
Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And as you read that psalm, you can see there's, there's three very different sections in that psalm. You could probably just chop it up into three different sections that are quite distinct. And he begins with this one short little section in the beginning, in verses 1 and 2, where he says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Our president said during the week sometime, I think it was at the, the ANC conference that they're having this weekend. He said that in South Africa, the men must get it into their heads so they don't own a woman. And that's remarkable because any woman who has a man who says, I own you, finds that insulting. I mean, that's true. I can just, I'm sure I can see all the ladies nodding at that. You're not owned by a man, are you? And even Christian marriage... Just because Christian marriage, where God says that a wife must submit to her husband, that doesn't mean that the husband owns the wife, does it? That's a bit of a, a despotic type of marriage, isn't it? But isn't it wonderful when God says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, God owns you. God owns the planet. God owns the universe. God owns you. God owns your money. God owns your car. God owns your house. You know... Whatever it is, if God owns whatever noun you can put after that, God owns it. And that's a wonderful thing to know, isn't it? It's wonderful to know that God owns the world. It's a personal possession of God. Whether a person is truly born again or not, this is still true. God owns you as His own personal possession. And that's both encouraging and terrifying, isn't it? Because when you look at God creating the world... You'll go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Remember, God introduces Himself by two names. And the one name is the great Creator God, Elohim. And when God speaks, a universe springs into existence. And we're meant to look at that event. We're supposed to see the power of just the Word of God. And we're supposed to say, wow, this God is terrifyingly powerful. This God is so powerful, I could never approach a God who is so terrifyingly powerful. And then in chapter 2, God introduces Himself as Yahweh, the, the covenant God, the relationship God, the relational God. Yes, He's that great terrifying God, but He's that God who comes to you as a small, weak individual and He makes all of His resources available to you. As I've said over and over, when John Piper writes his book, God is the Gospel, what, God, what the Gospel is saying is that God is giving Himself to people. And here we're looking at the beginning of the psalm as, as the great creation moment. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Why? Because God made it. Verse 2, He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now, of course, that's a strange sort of phrase. We don't use that anymore. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. We're not going to waste a lot of time talking about that the oddities of that, but it's an ancient worldview. Of course, you know, when Abraham and all of the fathers 
you know, the Israel's fathers, they, the forefathers, when they moved around, they would dig wells. And it was a commonly understood thing. If I can dig a well and I can find water, obviously there's water under the earth. So their, their world view was that there was, there was earth and then there's water underneath that. The, the earth is standing on pillars and if you dig a well, you dip into the water source. And of course, I mean, that's, that's accurate enough. There's obviously not water everywhere, but there is water under the earth. But the whole point is that God created. The terrifying creator God is the one who is in focus here. Now this psalm, if you read all of the commentators on this, as I did, looking everywhere to find out whose views on this uh, are the most reasonable. <clears throat> this psalm was either a, a psalm of a sense, you know, where the Jews were going up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, or most likely... It was a psalm that was written by David about the day when he brought the Ark of God into Jerusalem. And you remember there was no temple there at that time. So David pitched a tent for the Ark. And you remember when um, the Ark came to Jerusalem for the first time. You remember everybody was dancing and shouting and rejoicing because the Ark of God was finally coming into Jerusalem. And you remember that man Uzzah. He saw the oxen stumbling and he saw the ark of God shaking on the cart and he put out his hand to sta stabilize the ark so it wouldn't fall and he dropped dead on the spot. And suddenly that day all of the rejoicing was turned to mourning and the ark didn't go to Jerusalem on that day, you remember? It went to Obed-Edom's house and it stayed there for a while. So you get the, you get the moment here. As the psalmist is writing, as David is writing, they're cheering, they're rejoicing, they, they're saying the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. They're thinking of the great Creator God. They're thinking of the God who loves them because He's present with them in the Ark of the Covenant while they're busy transporting it. But at the same time, they remember, last time they did this, somebody died in the middle of all of this jubilation. So there's, there's wonderful joy, but there's this amazing sense of respect and awe and reverence for God. While the oxen are walking along and the cart is trundling along the road and it's sort of shaking it almost as if it's irreverent for the ark of God to be shaking along on an ox cart. But that's the way God wants it. That's the way it must be. So the sense of awe, the sense of reverence in the presence of the Creator God, but then also the fact that that God has made His presence known inside of that ark of a little box that is being transported. So these people are surrounding this ark and they're coming into Jerusalem with that great and glorious Creator God. I don't know about you, but I think this is... Just these first two opening verses are a beautiful moment in the psalm. They make you look at that and say, wow, that's amazing. These people who are not worthy are surrounding God in His ark as God is coming into this place. And there's terrible danger here. But also there's great reason for rejoicing because He's our God. I think when we move into the, the next couple of verses, suddenly things become a little bit, you know, we start sensing something of that other kind of fear when Uzzah dropped dead. In verses 3 to 6, the answer to the, the question is asked, Who is worthy? Or who will ascend the hill of the Lord? So here you've got the ark going toward Jerusalem. You've got all of these worshippers surrounding the ark. The oxen are going. The wheels are going clattering along the road. The ark is on the cart. 
And the people are singing. And now the question comes. We're on our way uphill. We're going up the Mount of the Lord. We're going into Jerusalem. And now the question is asked, who may actually do this? Who is worthy? Who is qualified? Who has the right? Who has the authority to walk with God up God's mountain into Jerusalem? Who may ascend, verse 3, the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? You might say to yourself, you know what, I can see the ark going into Jerusalem. I think I must just stick back a little bit. Let the ark go because I don't know if I'm qualified to do this. And then David goes on to, to show what the qualifications are. Who may go in? Who can actually follow the ark into Jerusalem? Who can go up the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in God's holy place? Verse 4 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Just, just a question off the top of our heads now. How many of us qualify to walk on that day into Jerusalem with the ark? Who here in this room can say, yes, I have clean hands, I have a pure heart. And what, what was it for that crowd? They're surrounding the ark of the covenant as it's going into Jerusalem. And David says, the person who has clean hands and a pure heart can go in. How many of those people would have just stopped outside of the gate and watched the ark going in by itself. Obviously all of them, hey? Obviously all of those people would, would have stopped. But the strange thing is that as the ark of the covenant keeps going, that whole crowd goes into Jerusalem surrounding, even though they're not qualified. I don't know if that strikes you as unusual. That's, that's a bit strange. It's a strange turn of events in the song. Because nobody in the crowd is qualified to go in, but everybody goes in. David himself, you remember, is dancing in front of the ark of the Lord with all of his might. I know that I've got African brothers and sisters in this church who may be able to show me what that looks like. Dancing before the Lord with all of your might. Without breaking something. But I often wonder what that must have looked like. You know, what was it to see King David dancing like that? My brother, my older brother, before he went into glory, he used to show me. He said, this is what I think it would look like. And he would dance. And we, me and my, you know, my other brother and sister, we would laugh at him. We just, he was so funny. And he would dance, just this crazy dance. He was putting as much power in as he could. And even that, I mean, that, that was so strange for him to do that. But what did it look like for David to do that? But even David does not have clean hands and a pure heart. So this is a, this is a problem in the psalm, isn't it? Do you have clean hands and a pure heart? Do I have clean hands and a pure heart? Absolutely not. So how is it that this whole crowd goes into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant even though they don't qualify to go in? I think there's two things going on in the psalm. You can see why it took me so long to work out what was going on in the psalm because I hit this problem in the text during the week and I realized I had to solve this problem. How can you preach a psalm if you can't understand what's going on in it? And I think there's two things going on in here. The one thing is when you look at the text, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, that's verse 3, who may stand in his holy place, verse 4 
is a, a line that gives us a sort of a, a synonym, a synonymous meaning. You know, the, the, the same idea in different words in the next line. He says, um, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So he specifies how this person's hands are clear, are clean, and how this person's heart is pure, how uh, clean hands and a pure heart. He, show, he sort of narrows it down to one particular thing. And the one particular thing he's pointing out here, of course this is not the whole, this is not the whole of the solution, I'm just starting here. The, whole, the idea that he's focusing on is a person who is not an idol worshipper. In other words, he's not following the ark of God, but his heart has turned to another God. Imagine how bizarre that would be. You know, a worshipper of Baal, for example, going along saying, Yeah, the ark of God is coming into Jerusalem. Meanwhile, he's just waiting to get home so he can go and do his rituals for his other God. That person's not qualified because his heart is somewhere else. His heart is going after another God. So when he does say, clean hands and a pure heart, he is qualifying that in this particular text, and he's adding the issue of idolatry, that this person's heart is not sold on another idol, on another God. And then also, he does not swear by what is false. He's not a person who has deliberately embraced um, error about God. So he looks at the Ark of the Covenant and he says, yes, this is my God. And he looks at the Ark of the Covenant and he says, because this is my God, I reject all of the other religious lies. I don't believe that Baal is God. I don't believe Asherah is God. I don't believe in all of those other gods that the nations believe in. This is my God. This is Yahweh, the Creator God who comes to me in covenant relationship and he commits himself to me. Yes, this is my God. I can follow this God in through Jerusalem. So that one, that helps, that starts to diffuse some of the, the problems in this text, doesn't it? Helps you to say, Phew, thank you Lord. That takes a bit of the pressure off, but I still cannot say that I have clean hands and a pure heart. I'm hoping that some of the, some of the, the, the tension has been diffused for you in this text. Okay. Thank you, Lundi. <laughs> I love it when people talk back to me. I can see we, we're making progress. Yeah. So, I think, I think if we had to put our finger on what I'm trying to say here, is that what David is talking about in this particular sense is the direction of a person's struggle. He's not saying that he's a completely holy person because then nobody would have followed the ark. But he's saying this is the direction of the struggle of the person who has clean hands and a pure heart. He's determined to be God's person. He's determined to, to live his allegiance to God. And that's beautiful because you can say, yes, Lord, please help me to be that person whose heart is completely devoted to you. I mean, that's, that brings relief, doesn't it? I hope. Okay, at that stage. But ultimately... God's people are not saved by the direction of their struggle, are they? God's people struggle in a particular direction because they are saved. And you can say, oh, this is starting to make sense. Who are these people who have clean hands and a pure heart? They're people who have their minds fixed on the God of the Bible, on the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
And why is that? Because God has had dealings with these people. He's worked in their hearts. And these are the people who reject everything that's false. This is the one idea in their minds. This is my God. This creator God. This terrifying God. I'm safe before Him because He is my God. It's interesting in the, the end of that little section. It says in verse 5, He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God His Savior. What person is this? Is a person who is receiving vindication from God, His Savior. So the person who has clean hands and a pure heart is the one who can say, God is my Savior. It's starting to become more and more clear what David intends in the psalm, who he's speaking about. He's speaking about somebody that God has saved. Verse 6 says, Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. So, the person who has clean hands and a pure heart is the person who's seeking God, who's desiring God. Who seeks God? Who desires God apart from a work of God in the heart? And the answer to that question is nobody. Not a single person seeks God. Not a single person desires God apart from a work of God. So that's the way in which I've understood these few verses that created such tension is that God has done a work in the heart of the person who is categorized as one who has clean hands and a pure heart. If we move on a little bit further to the next couple of verses, and I'm re really doing my best today not to go on for over an hour like the time before last. So I'm, I'm trying to be merciful here. Look at how the psalm ends, okay? And this... This ending of the psalm is so beautiful. In verse 7 he says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of Glory. And you can see from, from the Creator God, the one who created the entire universe, the one who owns everything as His personal possession, and He's coming in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and then the question is, who can be close to this God? Who can follow this God? Who can be by God's sight and go into Jerusalem with God? And He says, there's, there's not, not everybody can do that. He's speaking of the person in verses 3 to 6 who can do that and is categorized as the person with clean hands and a pure heart. The person whose drive of life is toward God and the person who is saved by God, the person who desires God, the person who seeks God. And obviously the whole of the Bible teaches that that's the person in whose heart God has worked. But then suddenly the psalm changes and you see this, this glorious scene where God is coming, and it's almost in the psalm, it says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up your ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. It's almost like there's somebody shouting to the doors, the gates of Jerusalem, and selling the doors, Open your gates, open your gates. And, and it's as if the gates are saying, By whose authority? Who says we should open? We can only open for one voice. There's one voice that can command the gates of Jerusalem to open on this day. And that is the voice of the Lord. You imagine that. Here comes the ark of God into Jerusalem. And the gates are commanded to open. 
And it says, lift up your heads. Take hope, Jerusalem. God is coming into the city. What a wonderful moment for the city of Jerusalem as the ark of God comes in. Uh, lift up your heads, though, you guys. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And you can almost see in your mind the sort of scene that is being painted here. The doors creaking open. It's almost like the doors are saying, yes, yes, this is the moment we've been waiting for. These rusty old hinges waiting for God to come into the city. Imagine a door that is so privileged that God can walk in through that doorway. God can come in through the Ark of the Covenant. The presence, the very presence of God can come in through that gate. What an honor for a door. What an honor for those, that crowd of people who are rejoicing and celebrating to come with God into Jerusalem. What a moment. How significant this moment is as the doors swing open because the ark of God is coming into the temple. Well, no temple, but into Jerusalem, into the tent that David has pitched for it. Doesn't matter that there's just a tent. God is there. Does God need a tent? It's not going to get wet in the rain. You remember Baal, when they, uh, Dagon, I mean, when the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant in front of Dagon in their temple. And in the morning they come back and Dagon, the poor guy, is fallen over and his, his limbs are falling off. Uh, poor guy, they put him back up. I don't know, maybe they used cement or something to get their guard to stand up again. And then the next morning he's fallen over again. Bowing down at the Ark of the Covenant. And here is the Ark of Covenant coming into Jerusalem. The doors open with hope. If God is there, what else can possibly go wrong? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has taken up residence among his people. I don't know if you see how beautiful this picture is. The Ark of the Covenant. The glorious God. The glorious Creator God. The one who is called the Lord, Yahweh, in this text. The gates are commanded to open by His authority. The great and glorious God is the one who can command the gates to open. And here, all of these ordinary, sinful, failing, weak people can come into Jerusalem because the gates have opened by the authority of God. His people are with Him. You know, it's almost as if God is saying to the gates of Jerusalem, they're coming in as well, they're with me. What a moment. I can, a weasel like me can come in to Jerusalem on that day because God has vouched for me. I'm with God. What a wonder, what a glorious reality this is. So, the, you know, remember when we started in verse 3 with the who questions, you know, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And then in verse 8 we have another who question. Verse 8 says, who is this King of glory? As if we've even got to answer that, that question. I think it's almost rhetorical. You know, who is this King of Glory? Of course it's the Creator God. It's the one who made you. It's the one who created the universe. Who is He? He is the Lord. He gives Him the covenant name, Yahweh, over here. He's the God, the great, glorious, terrifying Creator God, who comes into a box. And that box is on an ox cart. And it's surrounded by people who don't even, don't even deserve to touch it, like Uzzah who dropped dead. But we can walk with this God, the great glorious God, with ordinary people. And these people are coming into Jerusalem on the authority of that God. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. 
He's strong and mighty because we can see Him in verses 1 and 2 in creation. But also He is the Lord, mighty in battle. And if you look at Him mighty in battle, we think of all of the wars that Israel has had to go through in order just to survive as a nation. In fact, even if you think of King David, the greatest king that Israel ever saw, Never, ever, ever, ever defeated in battle. Yet, even this king, this man after God's own heart, he stands there in the middle of a battle when he was old. And it says there, David became exhausted. And he was standing there exhausted, too tired to fight. And this huge big Philistine is coming against him and telling him, I'm going to kill you. And one of David's mighty men comes along and strikes down the Philistine. And David is rescued from that scene. Even the greatest king that nation had ever seen is nowhere close to the authority of this God who comes. This is the Lord. He's mighty in battle. Never defeated. He comes through. There's no chance of him ever being defeated. No chance of God, this Lord, ever becoming weary in battle like King David did. You see the contrast between the strong and the weak. Surely David remembers this as he's thinking about this wonderful moment as the ark comes into Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. You'll notice that there's repetition in the psalm. And one of the cool things about the psalm is that it's one of those, what they call polyphonic psalms. You know, where one group of people shouts one thing and then the other group answers. So one group shouts... Um, lift up your heads O you gates be lifted up your ancient doors that the king of glory may come in somebody on that side shouts that and all of the rest of the people they shout back they say who is this king of glory the Lord almighty the Lord strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle and then the other voice shouts again lift up your heads O you gates lift them up that you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in and then the other people on the other side shout back who is he this king of glory the lord almighty he is the king of glory so it was a back and forward and back and forward and you can imagine the crowds getting more and more excited and what i'm trying to convey here is the beauty the wonder of the great glorious terrifying covenant covenant making god with his ordinary people who don't match up us weaklings, we can come with God, with all of our failings. And then, I think one of the, the things that is so beautiful about this psalm, and this is pretty much the thing I'm going to end with today, is that this psalm is also considered a messianic psalm. And that's beautiful. If you don't know what a messianic psalm is, a messianic psalm is a psalm about the Messiah. It's a psalm about the Christ. We use the word Christ as a substitute for the word Messiah in English. And it's, it's about Jesus. It's about the coming Christ. And of course, we're getting ready for Christmas. Next week we're preaching Christmas. And we're having a look at this glorious person. I'm sure you can see I'm going to tie this all together now. Hopefully all the pieces are just suddenly falling in place. As you go through the psalm in your mind, you say, oh, of course. So there's an immediate interpretation of this psalm. These people, you know, who can actually walk with the covenant of God into Jerusalem? 
and you can say the person with clean hands and a pure heart. And how many of those people were pure in that way? None of them were pure in that way. But there was a drive in the heart of each of those individuals because God had put it there. Therefore, they can rejoice because God is representing them. Now, when we look at the, the messianic nature of this psalm, when we look at the fact that this psalm is about the coming Christ, it brings us so much more joy, doesn't it? Verses 1 to 2, the great and glorious Creator God that owns everything. How many times in the New Testament do we read about the fact that it was the Son who is credited with the creation of the physical universe? John 1 verse 3, Through Him, the Son, the Word, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. The glorious Creator Son. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed, of all, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. This glorious Son, the glorious Creator God, who is called the Lord, is also presented to us as the Son, the Son of God. How wonderful to know that David has in mind the Son of God here, second member of the Trinity. In verses 3 to 6 that we went through a moment ago with the clean hands and the pure heart, isn't it absolutely wonderful to know that it is the Son? We don't, we don't match up to that in the ultimate sense at all, do we? But there is one man who matches up. There is one man who has an absolutely pure heart and absolutely clean hands. And he has the authority to walk with God because he is God into Jerusalem. He has the authority to stand before God on the basis of his perfect life as a human being. There is a perfect man in glory, Jesus Christ. What a glorious what a glorious reality that is. And then of course in verses 7 to 10, when we read, Lift up your head so your gates be lifted up your ancient doors. The King of Glory is coming into Jerusalem. Who is this King of Glory? It's none other than the great Lord Jesus Christ. God is coming into Jerusalem, the great glorious God among His ordinary people. And here in the Messianic Understanding of the psalm, we see the great and glorious Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, walking with those, you and me, as believers in the Lord Jesus, that He's not ashamed to call brothers. He can say to His Father, Alan is with me. And the Father can say, does He have clean hands and a pure heart? No, He doesn't, but I do. And He's here on my authority. Just like the gates of Jerusalem would open for no one else but the Lord the mighty God, the one who's mighty in battle. So God's pleasure is only on the one who has that, those beautiful clean hands and a pure heart. But I stand there with Him. God looks at Him and He sees me. What a beautiful moment that is. The Son is mighty in battle. Remember Colossians 2 verse 15 where Paul writes, And having disarmed the powers and authority... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. What a glorious person this is. He takes on all of the forces of darkness, takes on every single enemy of God, and He stands there tall, the one 
who is mighty in battle. I find it absolutely beautiful that even though I don't qualify to follow the ark of God, even though I don't qualify to come into the presence of God on my own merits because I have none, I can stand with an open face in front of the throne of God and know that I stand there on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who who fought the battle for me. So as the ark and the worshippers are going into Jerusalem and they're following God, they're going in with God into the gates of Jerusalem, they're doing that only because God Himself is there. They're going by the authority of God. What a beautiful moment. And this Christ that we remember at Christmas, Emmanuel, God, with us, that, that's the picture, isn't it? That's, if you had to sum up Psalm 24 in one word, it would be the word Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel, God, with us. And therefore we can have confidence, we can have joy as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we did not have God with us, there'd be no opening of the gates. There'd be no access to God. There'd be no reason to dance, no reason to shout for joy, no reason to dance like David with all his might before the ark of God. Without the authority of God, without the Messiah, there's no access. There's no beauty, there's no joy forever and ever and ever. So as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, one, one text of scripture comes to mind. And of course, we see him right at the end here. This tiny little baby in a manger. And in the end, we see the glorious God, the glorious return of Christ. Where Revelation 19 verse 11 says, John looking into heaven and picturing this very scene. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. Whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth came, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, quoting Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a wonder that for you, if you are born again, when Jesus, the baby in the manger, returns in full glory, you're going to stand on His authority. He's not going to come as your enemy. You're going to stand on His authority. And you're going to have the right to stand before God because of the fact that He is mighty and He is mighty in battle. Let's ask God to help us to think through the psalm in the week that lies ahead as we approach our celebration of Christmas Day. And let's, let's ask God to make this, this reality a blessing to us. Emmanuel, God with us, the great, glorious, creator God with His people. Lord, thank You for today. Thank you for the joy that we can read a psalm like this and we can see even the language that you use in Genesis, the great and glorious, terrifying God who speaks and the universe comes into existence. And not only that, Lord, but you sustain 
all of these massive bodies with huge, huge, huge almighty power. And Lord, who can approach a God like that? Who can approach a God like that? The only person who can approach you, Lord, as we've seen, is a person that you personally have qualified. Lord, you've come. You've given new life. You've caused us to be born again. You've given your people new life. Lord, you've qualified us by your own merits to stand before you, to walk with you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the great and terrifying power of this God in this song. And to see the contrast between us and that God. And see how unworthy we are. And Lord, help us to find joy at this time. It's Christmas time. And Lord, we stand with you by your grace. Lord, we stand with that great and glorious God by your grace. And that we have access because, you, because you've granted us that access. Please help us, Lord, to be filled with joy and to appreciate this as it should be appreciated. And we pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.